So what do you do when it sucks to be you? And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And uh, before uh, we get started, let's just uh, take a moment and pray. Lord, this is a hard topic uh, for some of us, and we ask that you would speak to us. Our hearts and our minds are open and alert. We admit that we need you. And so speak to us today because we're listening for you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, what is a uh, grandfather's real job with grandkids? This is something I think I'm learning. comes very natural to me. I don't mean to brag about it, but it does. comes very natural to me with our one grandchild, Haley, who is temporarily living with my wife, Denise, and I. And I realize that Haley's mother, Abigail, and grandmother, my wife, Denise, have gone to great lengths to raise this kid right, you know, like healthy diet, daily bath, clean clothes, lots of attention, learning games, reading books, all of those are good things. But the one thing that those, that uh, always seems to be left out is the experience of adventure. That's where grandpa comes into play. I mean, I'm the one who takes Haley on Jeep rides up and down the rough terrain where I live out in the country, and she loves it. I am the one that when mom and grandma aren't around, I give her things like big red soda. But yeah, what's that all about? Living in Texas and a kid doesn't even ever have a chance to drink big red. Or I was the first one to give this child chocolate ice cream or any of the other main staples of life. However, one morning after such an adventure, (laughs) I was angrily confronted by the sat-off female clan who asked, did you take Haley on another Jeep ride last night where she bumped her mouth on the dash? And did you give her Big Red again so that she was up all night long? This was a defining moment in our home. (laughs) And as a pastor and a spiritual man, at least I try to be a spiritual man who tries to be honest and tell the truth, I had to admit, no, I did not do that. But the ladies knew better, and they, <laughs> they chewed me out. I am still in the doghouse on that one. And in that moment, it was one of those times it just sucked to be me, and it was my own fault. Now, the Urban Dictionary defines this colloquialism, sucks to be you, as a period of time when anything bad happens to you. But our slant today is going to be this. We're going to answer the question, what do you do when your own Poor choices, your own choices, your own bad decisions put you in the doghouse. What do you do when it sucks to be you? When you flirted with your neighbor's wife and now you're in trouble at home, sucks to be you, dude. Or you should have called a cab or let someone else drive and you got pulled over, sucks to be you. Are you gambled on the stock market or in a poker game or on a fantasy league and it depleted your savings and your spouse is livid? (laughs) Are you dabbled in drugs? You're a good person. You're not a druggie, but that dabbling has now turned into a dangerous addiction. Or your depression. It's understandable. You've gone through a lot, but now you've eaten yourself into a diabetic coma. Things aren't going well. 
or when in a moment of insanity somehow you thought it was to your advantage to tell your boss off. How'd that work for you? Or when you thought what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. (laughs) That was before Facebook and phone cameras and now it really does suck to be you and it's your own fault. Well, the truth is, uh, we've all made mistakes. And some mistakes are nothing more than small irritants, you know, like a pebble in your shoe. But other mistakes are big, they're huge. Cataclysmic consequences are attached, and that's bad. In the early days of the church, there was a distraught man, and he came to see me, who had made one of those cataclysmic mistakes. He mentioned how he and his wife had a very strained relationship, and one weekend, while she was away on a business trip, uh, he called an escort service. And this young lady comes to the door. Well, when she got to the door, first of all, she was not so young, and she did not look like the models you see in Vogue. She had a rough voice as if her throat was made of sandpaper. She cussed like a sailor and demanded her money up front. The dude quickly figured out, okay, this is not going well. This isn't right. This isn't good. I've made a mistake. I knew this was wrong in the first place. So he paid her the money and asked her to leave. No harm, no foul, just leave. This chick would not leave. Minutes turned into an hour. Now he's beside himself with worry when there's a knock at the door and this very large, scary guy, probably named Bubba or Vinny, demanded more money. Well, he complied and finally, the two of them, the ugly prostitute and the scary pimp, they left. But when the wife finally came home and saw their bank account was empty, let's just say this was not a mistake of a pebble in your shoe variety. It was cataclysmic. It was a large mistake. Now he had a decision to make. It was why he was in my office. What do you do when you make a mistake like that? What do you do when it sucks to be you and it's your own fault? Is there something that you can do that will at least help you navigate through the mess that you have created? It's a question we all have to ask at some point in our lives. We'll talk about a mess. One of the most infamous Bible stories of cataclysmic mistake that turned into a ginormous mess is the story of King David. It's recorded in the Old Testament in the book of 2 Samuel, and I'll just highlight the low points of the king's blunders. First of all, he shacked up with his neighbor's wife. Her name was Bathsheba. She got pregnant. He tried to cover it up but nothing worked. So finally, he abused his royal power and arranged to have this woman's husband, his name was Uriah, to have him killed. And he did, that's called murder. And when NCIS arrived on the scene, forensic evidence pointed a finger of guilt at the king. But no one would say anything. I mean, he was the king. No one would say anything until one of the king's confidants a spiritual man named Nathan confronted David by telling him this very interesting story. There were two men. One was rich, the other was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb. And he raised this little lamb, and it grew up with his children like a pet, and it, it ate from the man's own plate and drank from his own cup, and he cuddled it in his arms like a baby. But 
One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man next door. But instead of killing an animal from his vast number of sheep and cattle for a great barbecue that day, he took the poor man's only lamb and he killed it and prepared it for his guest. Well, when the king, when David heard this story, Bible says he was furious. He rose and he demanded, as surely as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. To which Nathan replied, O king, you are that man. You are the king. You could have anything you want. You could have any single woman you want, yet you took your neighbor's only wife for yourself. And then you had her husband killed. Busted. Slammed. Nathan was saying, oh king, right now my friend, it's just gonna suck to be you. You made a mistake, it's your own fault. So what are you gonna do? What would David do? Well, once David realized that he was at fault, and that there was suffering looming on the horizon because of his poor choices, he actually did the right thing, and you can too. That's why I want us to unpack this story. So let's do that. Let's break it down. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13 and following. The first thing David did was to speak up. Verse 13, David confessed to Nathan You're right, I have sinned against the Lord. The basic Hebrew word for confession means to say out loud or speak up. Speak up in this context means say what you did. Confession always includes saying what you did. When it sucks to be you, you gotta speak up, you gotta admit and say what you did. No one wants to do this part. We want to skip this part. We want God to wave his magical wand and just fix our suffering. It does not work that way. The step of confession cannot be skipped. There is no healing. There is no fix. There is no help. There is no turnaround. Nothing good happens until you say what you did. Well, David said what he did. He spoke up and admitted, I was wrong. Nathan replied, yes, that is true. But because you've spoken up and admitted that you were wrong, the Lord has forgiven you. This is so cool. Forgiveness is always the result of saying honestly what you did. Others may not forgive you, or at least they may not forgive you at first. You may not even forgive yourself at first, but God Almighty said, you speak up and I will forgive your sin. You cannot out-sin God's grace. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, or what you did. God's grace is greater than your sin. When it sucks to be you because of the mistakes you've made, You can be forgiven, just speak up. But at this point in the narrative or the story, if there was an underscore of music going on, it would turn a bit ominous here because Nathan continued, God's forgiven you, but 
Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing what you did, this child's not going to make it. This child's going to die. Now you must listen up. Even though sins are forgiven, consequences remain. Consequences are not God's way of getting back at you. They are not always God's way of punishing you. Consequences are just consequences. They are the logical results of our misbehavior. We don't get this. We don't want consequences. We want God to forgive us and then eliminate the consequences. It does not work that way. There was a, a distraught man who asked to pray with me one week and is right over here on the side many years ago. And so I met him and I asked how I could pray with him. And he said, well, I've broken the law and it was a pretty serious crime and he said, I, I have to report to authorities tomorrow, the next day, and begin serving a multi-year sentence in prison. And here's what he said to me. He said, but pastor, now I'm coming to church, I don't miss, I read my Bible every day and I pray, do you think God could fix this? So I said, dude, and I'm gonna tell you, dudes, listen up. God will forgive you but he will not eliminate the consequences of your action. He is not gonna fix the thing, but if you will let him, he will begin to fix you. And you will be a better man. You will be a better woman. This guy said, well, I don't like that. Well, of course you don't, nobody likes that. We want God to fix the consequences. We want instant gratification. So. As someone who's supposed to love you guys, and I do, and I care about you, you know what, I was telling our team when I was going over this, I told them, I think I'm gonna say this. They said, you better not, and I said, I think I am. <laughs> I love you enough to say, come on, grow up. Consequences are just consequences. They're the logical results of our own misbehavior, and most of the time, the consequences just remain. But God forgives you, and he'll work in your life to make you a better person. You must separate consequences from forgiveness. God forgives, but the consequences of our choices always remain, and sometimes those consequences are painful. They certainly were for King David. David begged God to spare the child from, from death. The child was sick, was born sick. He went without food. He lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of the household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. He would not listen to reason. No appetite, no motivation, you couldn't reason with them. These are all characteristics of a clinical depression. Talk about being slammed by suffering. The king was hurting badly. Have you ever hurt so badly you couldn't eat, you couldn't get out of bed, or you could not be reasoned with? Less than a year ago, it's a true story, less than a year ago, I drove my Jeep to a quiet, secluded spot on our family property out in Helotus, and it was late at night and I sat there thinking about a myriad of unsettling issues that I was dealing with, some of which I had brought on myself, some of which I could do nothing about. 
and this isn't like me, but I, I, just, I just cried. In fact, I told a friend, I couldn't stop crying. What is going on here? One point, it was like I couldn't even breathe. Slammed. There are all times, we all have times in our lives where we can identify with what King David must have been feeling. I bet many of you can identify with the king. And then talk about piling on. Here he is praying, God, I'll do anything. God, save the life of this child. On the seventh day, verse 18, the seventh day, the child passed away. The child died. And this is just a, a double whammy on the king because you circumcise a child on the eighth day. And that was a huge thing. It's like the way some view infant baptism today. It's a huge, huge thing. And the child died a day before that, it was just a horrible event. And David's servants were worried about the king because they thought, okay, they, asked, they were talking amongst themselves saying, when the king finds out that the child's dead, what drastic thing will he do? What drastic thing will you do? It was their way of asking, what do you do when it sucks to be you? What do you do? But here's where the story turns. Watch how David responded. After being slammed by suffering, when you're slammed by suffering, like the king, and it sucks to be you, you speak up. You say what you did. And you listen up. You understand there may be consequences. You're forgiven, but there still may be consequences. And then, friends, you get up. David got up from the ground washed himself, put on lotions, changed his clothes, and after that he was served food, and he ate. You physically move from a posture of depression to a position of possibility. You get up. If you've been in your PJs binge watching Netflix so long, it keeps asking, are you still watching? Are you still watching? <laughs> Friends, get up. Put one foot in front of the other. Ain't nothing good going to happen when wallowing in the muck and the mire of suffering that you caused and brought on yourself. Just get up, and you can do this. You can get up if you will first speak up and say what you did. Say what you did. Take responsibility for the consequences of your actions, and your posture of depression will morph into a position of possibility. Get up. You must get up. Make yourself presentable. It's kind of interesting here. The scripture says he washed and he put on lotions. The word there is anoint. He anointed himself and he got some clothes on, different clothes, and he ate. All this is saying is the dude took a bath, he put on deodorant, and then he dressed like he believed God could still make a difference in his life. God is not dead. He is for you. He has forgiven you. He will walk with you through the suffering you brought on yourself. He still has a plan for your life. I know you don't have much faith to believe that, but just use my faith for a while. It's the truth. God has a plan for your life. It's an awesome plan for your life, but you've got to get up. David got up and put on the clothes of the royal clothes that said to the nation, God's still in control. After David got up and made himself presentable, then he looked up to God. 
Scripture says he went to the tabernacle and he worshiped the Lord. The word worship there, shakaz, is the Hebrew word. It literally means to bow your knee in a posture of humility. To look up, you must first bow down. Bow down means to humble yourself. Humble yourself and admit what the king had to admit. I have sinned. Humble yourself and realize what the king had to realize. Consequences may remain. Humble yourself and do what the king had to do. You just get up and put one foot in front of the other and anticipate that God wants to do something with your life. And then humble yourself and go where the king actually went. Back to the temple, back to church to do one specific thing, worship. And we know historically how the king worshiped. It was his favorite thing to do. David was an artisan soul. He was a poet warrior. He was a songwriter who expertly played the harp. It was David who auditioned the best vocals in the land and formed the first choir. It was King David who gathered the most skillful instrumentalists to play stringed instruments and various horns and drums. Music was at the heart of temple worship. It was at the heart of the king. And we know from David's writings that worship was always instrumental in David's recovery. Recovery from sicknesses that he endured. He wrote about them. Recovery from wars that he fought, depressions that he battled, embarrassing sins he committed. The king always turned back to musical worship to get him through these seasons of suffering. In one psalm, he even penned these words, God inhabits the praises of his people. The musical worship, God is there. That means when you humble yourself and look up with songs of worship, God guarantees his presence. So you've been slammed by suffering. We all have those seasons in our lives. But sometimes they're caused by our own mistakes or poor choices or sin. And sometimes the consequences are hard. But God has forgiven you. Look up. Look up and worship him. God inhabits the praises of his people. God is here right now in our worship.